0: Well, hey, everybody, good evening. Welcome to Coffee House Theology. And uh, I'm flying solo tonight as Brian had to attend a funeral in Chattanooga uh, for one of the former families they were close to at Brentwood Baptist. And so I uh, appreciate you guys uh, being here this evening. couple of things as we get started. Uh, one is that I uh, want to let you know that tomorrow evening, uh, six o'clock over here in Reed Hall, we're going to host a prayer time um, uh, for uh, Covenant uh, Church and School. Uh, and just some time to grieve and process. Our deacons are leading that time, uh, so they'll be available uh, to be here to pray with you. Uh, But uh, just kind of come and go. Uh, It's not a formal structured program, but starting at about six o'clock and uh, going until uh, probably 7, 7.30 uh, tomorrow evening. So uh, if you just have been feeling like, hey, I need to just go pray, bring some of this to the Lord, a safe place to lament, that is a biblical response. We'll talk about that Uh, Sunday morning as well. But uh, uh, thankfully, no direct connections to our immediate church family. But of course, our extended church family uh, had children enrolled there, Uh, lots of connections uh, to the teachers uh, and the families affected. So uh, we continue to pray for them. Uh, during this uh, difficult season uh, in their lives and in the life of of that community and that church. I also wanted to let you know that next week we won't won't gather on Wednesday night. It's Holy Week, uh, so we won't have any activities. I know in the past sometimes we've had uh, midweek activities um, with Holy Week, but we're not doing that this year. About half of our families are on spring break. Uh, with Murray County being on spring break. And so uh, instead, uh, we have a podcast that's gonna be linked on the website. Uh, Our own preschool minister, Amy Keyes, did that for our entire Brentwood Baptist Church family. So there are family devotionals uh, that you can walk through every day. Uh, via podcast that will focus on the events of Holy Week. And then, of course, we'll have our Good Friday and then our Easter services on both Saturday afternoon and evening and uh, Sunday morning. So uh, look forward to that. But we won't gather next week, and then we'll come back the the following week uh, with Wednesday night and Coffee House Theology. Uh, All right, uh, on the screen is uh, the quick QR code if you want to grab that if you're not on our distribution list. Uh, And then Brady's going to switch over to the Slido room, and I'm actually going to take a picture of that myself tonight uh, because I will have to grab... uh, those in a few minutes when we get to Q&A time as well. Uh, and so our room, if you can't uh, grab the QR code, is go to slido.com and enter two zero one eight one three eight, 8138 And so you can grab that and then we'll do some Q&A at the end. And again, be patient with me uh, as I'll try to navigate those and flip from presenting to uh, engaging with you guys Uh, Around that. But uh, tonight we get into the Reformation. Uh, So, uh, kind of at last uh, is the way that I feel uh, about that because the Middle Ages uh, are just a a much tougher period of history to uh, transverse. You're going to hear things becoming much more familiar uh, and beginning to recognize the shape of the world in which we live, which is part of the cool story. So, I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to get started. Let's pray together tonight. Uh, Lord Jesus, it's been a heavy week in our city and in our community. And so, God, we cry out. Uh, Your word invites us to bring our hard questions, uh, our lament, our grief, um, our trouble to you. Uh, And so we do that, God, knowing uh, that uh, in your presence, God, we uh, find you there. And, uh, Lord, we uh, do want to pray for our friends at Covenant Presbyterian Church and school. Uh, God, those families that have lost loved ones, those uh, many families that are experiencing trauma. Uh, And just the way that, God, this reminds us of uh, some hard truths, uh, that safety is an illusion, uh, that security in a broken world can end at any time. And so, God, we uh, put our trust in you and in you alone. Uh, God, tonight, as we turn our attention uh, to this really uh, key turning point in history, uh, the Reformation, God, we will see uh, how you prepared people, God, uh, to desire change And how, when, uh, God, people recovered uh, the authority of Scripture, it began to change uh, not only the church, but the world around it. In a similar way, God, I pray that in our era, God, we will bring people back to your word. That we will recover these truths. That we will see the world changed because we're a people who dare uh, to believe in the authority of your word and to build our lives on it. Uh, So be with us uh, as we journey tonight. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So quick reminder, uh, big, big picture, right? That history is his story. Uh Fred Nick Brinkner once said, welcome to the world where beautiful and terrible things will happen. Uh, Beautiful things because uh, of God and his ways and his grace and his mercy, but terrible things because of sin and because of the brokenness of man. And we will uh, see all of that at work uh, in the next few weeks. Uh, So despite the sin of man and the brokenness of everything man touches, including the church, because the church is full of imperfect people, God is still always at work. And so those narratives of grace, as we have called them, that are undercurrents through even the messy periods of church history, we know uh, that that what Satan intends to sabotage, God will superintend for his sovereign plan and purposes. I think it's kind of interesting that we're in the book of Acts on Sunday morning, uh, paralleling some of the things that we're seeing uh, in church history in the sense of in the middle of Satan's attempts to stop the spread of the gospel, there are still those who are faithful, uh, God's word, uh, as it says in Isaiah, Isaiah uh, 40, verse eight, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord our God stands forever. Uh, and so we're gonna see uh, evidence of that again tonight. And so such is the case with our family story, also known as church history. I know based on the things we've shared the last few weeks, we want to distance ourselves sometimes uh, from that part of the family as much as possible. And yet at the same time, uh, honest historians look at the good and the bad parts of our story. Uh, because there are things to learn from both, positive examples and negative examples. Uh, And so thankfully this week we get into an era in which uh, we see uh, God do some pretty amazing things. I wanna bring you back up to speed, just kind of timeline, pre-Reformation. All these dates, of course, are AD. In the anti-nicene age, uh, from 100 to 325, we saw rapid church growth, even amid persecution. So the story we're in on Sunday mornings, of course, in Acts, Right ends with Luke saying the gospel moves forward unhinderedly, an uncharacteristically awkward word for Luke. And a lot of scholars believe he used it on purpose. In other words, he was saying to be continued. Well, certainly enough the church continued to grow and to multiply even under severe persecution in those first few centuries. In 313, as we covered, Emperor Constantine issued the famous Edict of Milan, which stated, it is proper that the Christian and all others should have liberty to follow the mode of religion which each to which each appears best. So for the first time, Christianity was recognized as a legitimate religion within the empire. And as we've talked about before, out of Constantine's own experience in battle and his supposed vision of the Cairo, Uh, and putting the cross on the shields of his uh, soldiers and he was victorious, he began to adopt Christianity. uh, And so that began to change things for the Christian church. In 324, Constantine near the end of his reign divided the empire into East Byzantine and West Roman. We are byproducts of the Western line. Um, Byzantine in the East, and we're going to talk about that some more as well, but it had its own trajectory. In 325, the Council of Nicaea convened around the doctrine of Christ, and in every generation that followed, genuine believers lived out and passed along the gospel. But institutionally, the church in both the East and the West grew increasingly corrupt. In 1054, the Great Schism brings final separation between Eastern and Western churches, Uh, And then this period that we just covered over the span of three weeks, the Middle Ages, we covered early, middle, or high Middle Ages, middle, Middle Ages, and the late Middle Ages. The church became increasingly worldly, is the way that we could sum that up. Political, bureaucratic, wealthy, immoral, and sadly, heretical. Now, again, there were faithful believers and separatist movements and uh, people who were monks and nuns and uh, were faithful and obedient to to pass along scripture. Uh, There's notable exceptions, and we've looked at some of those. People like Augustine of Hippo, uh, St. Patrick, uh, St. Benedict, St. Francis. And last week, Brian told you about these forerunners of the Reformation. In 1330, John Wycliffe of Oxford, he's called the morning star of the Reformation. He began to call for reforms in the church and had the audacity to begin to translate the Bible into English. He was persecuted and, of course, killed for his views. As Brian pointed out last week, he was uh, so hated right, by the authorities that they eventually dug up his bones and burned them again. Uh, as if that would prove something. But, uh, but Wycliffe was the morning star. He was kind of the forerunner, the, the first real prominent reformer. Then about a century later in 1415, John Huss of Prague, who was a priest and a professor, was burned at the stake uh, for daring to criticize the Roman church uh, and promoting and building on Wycliffe's views. I've been there to Prague uh, where uh, that took place, where you see the statue to John Huss. Uh, and so what you begin having, of course, is this undercurrent of revolution. Uh, that was dawning in Europe. Uh, People knew intuitively, right? Things were not the way they were supposed to be. Uh, and there is a degree of brokenness in the world to which people, the human heart, will finally respond. And so in 1483, Martin Luther is born. And we're going to focus on him a lot tonight, simply because, again, when we look at history, uh, it, it's, it's easier to focus on one man. But he was very influential. He wasn't the only influential uh, person in the Reformation. But by and large, uh, he was the one whose views and whose uh, impact loomed the largest. So the Renaissance was dawning in Italy. And we'll talk about that some more in a minute. And so Europe was ready for a change. Uh, Many of you will remember several years ago, we walked through uh, the the prophecy material in the Old Testament. Even when we went through the entire Bible in a year, 2020, we walked through the Old Testament. By walking through that all the way through, many of you experienced, right, that, that longing for Jesus to come the longing for a messiah that the nation of israel continued in this pattern right of uh, they'd go to god and then they'd turn to themselves and then they would get themselves into trouble and then they would be judged by god and then they would run back to god and this cycle that it was repeating over and over again and by the time you get to the end of the old testament you're just longing for the messiah to come And so then our hearts are ready to receive the New Testament. In a similar way, these last weeks, like walking through all of these names and dates and issues that surrounded the church and history uh, throughout uh, the, the, the Middle Ages, it prepares us to want something different. And so in 1501, a guy named Martin Luther, right, enrolled. Here's a here's a depiction of him, right, in his university days to study law. Here he saw a copy of the Latin Bible which originally remember was translated by Jerome into Latin in the university library and for the first time viewed the entire scriptures in their printed form. So I want you to remember that, that what you hold most of you in your lap, what's in the rack right in front of you, the Bible in printed form, we're talking about the 1500s, that for 1500 years, most people from the time the Bible was written until the printing press did not have access to a full copy of the scriptures. Only if you were a university student, only if you were a priest, only if you were incredibly wealthy, would you have access to the scriptures. Do not take it for granted that you can hold the Bible in your hands, that you can read the entirety of God's revelation to us. Martin Luther didn't see it until this point, and it impacted him. Here's a depiction, right? Caught in a thunderstorm, a close call with a lightning bolt led him to shout out, Saint Anne, help me, I will become a monk. A lot of us have had that situation in our life where we made promises to Jesus, right? sometimes it was late on a Saturday night. Sometimes it was when we wanted our team to win the ball game. Sometimes it's when we got ourselves into financial or emotional or relational trouble. But God, if you'll rescue me, right? Then I'll give my life to you. So in essence, that's what happened to Martin Luther, God works in mysterious ways. And so that month he entered an Augustinian cloister at Erfurt in Germany, but he still continued to struggle emotionally and spiritually and could not find peace. So one of the things you have to admire about Martin Luther is that he was an honest seeker. Like he, he would not allow his conscience to rest. And so he was continually trying to figure out what God had for him. In 1510, He traveled to Rome and he was disappointed and disillusioned with the state of the church. Just like anybody who, growing up right outside a a big city or a metropolitan area, right, you're excited to go visit the big city. And of course, because Rome loomed large in in theology and in all things religious, uh, Martin Luther was excited to go there. He went there and he was just very disappointed. As a matter of fact, here's one of the things he said. And I myself in Rome heard it said openly in the streets, if there is a hell, then Rome is built on it did not have a great opinion of the big city. Uh, Like anybody who's taken the wrong turn into an alleyway in New York City, right? Or uh, gone driven into the wrong part of Chicago on the South Side. uh, It's not what you would expect it would be. And so his disillusion with the city wasn't just with the city itself, of course. It was with the state of the Roman church. And so in 1511, he moved to Wittenberg where he earned his Doctor of Theology degree. In 1513, he began to lecture through the Psalms. And in 1514, he encountered Romans 1, 16 and 17 and was moved deeply. Here is what he said about that passage. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience and had no confidence that my character would satisfy him. Night and day I pondered. Then I grasped that the justice of God is the righteousness by which, through grace and sheer mercy, He justifies us through faith. Immediately, I felt myself to have gone through open doors into paradise. And so Martin Luther struggled with what so many people to this day struggle with the burden of religion, the burden of works. And here's Martin Luther trying to figure it out. He enters, right, uh, to to a cloister. He becomes a monk. He throws himself into a degree in theology. He, uh, you know, begins to serve the church. He he lectures, and, and in all of this, his soul is not settled. Why? Because he's trying to earn his way into right standing with God. And then what is it that unlocks this for him, this truth? It's scripture itself. He goes on to lecture on Romans and then Galatians. I would recommend to you the English translation of his commentary on Galatians. It's brilliant. He said, these studies, one one author said, these studies proved to be for Luther, the Damascus Road, referring to to Paul's experience where he saw the light. So all of a sudden it is scripture that turns the light on for Luther, that gives him his aha that he's been looking for. And I love that. One of my favorite quotes as a pastor is, let the word do the work. My job as a pastor right, is to allow God's word to be unleashed among God's people and to allow God's word to work. My job is to clarify it, illuminate it, point you towards it. As I tell you often, I can't feed you what you need in 30 minutes a week, but I pray that I make you more hungry. And so as God's word gets into your heart and your life, right, it does the work. And it's what did the work in the life of Luther. It wasn't the church. It wasn't the church traditions. It wasn't, um, uh, it wasn't his ability to teach. It wasn't his works. It was the word of God that unlocked the truth for him. And so built on those convictions, Luther became increasingly disturbed with what he saw around him. What really, what really teed him off was the selling of indulgences. Uh, this is an art, artist depiction uh, from near that era of a guy named Tetzel. I mean, just look at the guy, right? Uh, even in the picture, uh, he just looks like a smarmy kind of dude. He's got his hand on the coin box, right? He got his hand up and kind of given the blessing kind of thing. Uh, and this is a, an engraving from Germany. It was done a couple centuries after his life. But Tetzel was the guy and he, he was responsible for selling what was called indulgences. In essence, the Catholic church was saying, if you pay money, right, then you receive spiritual favors, And so there's a little quote that goes with it. When a coin in the coffer or the offering box rings, a soul from purgatory springs. So what the church was teaching was you come and you drop your money, you give your gold to us, and one of your relatives gets a a ticket into heaven. Like that's how corrupt and and just misguided uh, and abusive the church was during this era. And so this is what pushed Luther over the edge. For most people, there's usually that one issue, that one moment, right? Where they're like, enough is enough. I can't take it anymore. And so famously, of course, Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door or had one of his associates do it. There's scholarly debate about that uh, on October 31st of 1517. And so uh, whether it was him or somebody else, these 95 theses resonated with many people and those criticisms quickly spread. So by 1518, the Pope demanded that, the Luther, that Luther come to Rome. Uh, he didn't go all the way to Rome. Instead, he went to a place called Augsburg. Here's a picture, an artist's depiction of that meeting. And he said, he will recant if someone in the church can show him from the scriptures where he is wrong. Of course, no one can do that. And so in 1520, the Pope excommunicated Luther. Now, in that era, understand, excommunication in a lot of cases was a a death sentence. It was certainly the end of Luther's professional career in the church as a professor of theology. Remember, we're not past the Reformation. He can't just go to another university. He can't just go to a different denomination. He can't just go to another church. Instead, the only avenue available to him, right, is the institutional church, the church of Rome. And so Luther does something that would have been absolute shocking to his contemporaries. He burns the document publicly, defying the Pope. And so in 1521, they commence another meeting. Here's another famous painting of him. And I don't know what was up with the monk haircuts of that era. There was probably a reason, Uh, but they had this weird thing where they'd shave off everything but one little band of hair. Uh, And so that's depicted here as well. And so he is here, he's giving his defense Uh, And so he is convicted as a heretic. It was called the DA or the Assembly of Worms. And there he gave his famous, here I stand speech in which this is uh, the concluding section. He said, unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and the councils for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me, amen. And so it's deep and abiding conviction. Basically, he was willing to put his life on the line. And so as he was being carried away from this meeting, he was kidnapped. Here's an artist's depiction of that. And so this kidnapping, however, was not from his foes. It was from his friends who wanted to protect him. There were some powerful German princes who agreed with him. And of course, they had their own reasons for wanting to stick it to Rome, namely that Rome was taking all of their money and all of their power. Uh, and so they saw their opportunity. They were opportunists in some ways. Uh, there's, again, conflicting accounts. Some of them were, were more interested in theology than others. Some of them were just pragmatists. But regardless, they kidnapped Luther in order to keep him safe. And so they took him to, and you can go and see it to this day, to the castle of Wartburg. Uh, You can go into the room where he was kept to this day, his, quote, cell. Uh, And again, it was pretty simple by our standards, uh, not exactly a five-star hotel, uh, but for that era, it was pretty common. And you can see the desk there at which he translated the New Testament into German. So he had time on his hands. He couldn't do public ministry. Instead, he used this time to translate the New Testament into the language of the people of Germany. In 1523, the early Reformation turned violent as the first martyrs were burned uh, and the Peasants' Revolt breaks out. And so it wasn't long and before this led to all these skirmishes that the, the, what Luther was teaching began to catch on. And of course, that came into to conflict with various authorities. And so all of these little skirmishes begin to break out. In his personal life, now no longer a monk, uh, no longer under the authority of Rome, Uh, In 1525, Martin Luther married a former nun, Catherine von Bora. Uh, They had uh, many children. They had six children. They're not all depicted here, uh, but this is a family devotional time at the Luther household. Kids all dressed proper uh, and uh, holding uh, various pieces of paper. looks like they're singing there together. Again, just an artist recreation of what that would have looked like. But he had six children and four adopted uh, children. Uh, During that time, uh, Luther again continued to be productive. He composed uh, his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, uh, in 1527. Uh, Here's a a picture of the statue that's there in Wittenberg of Luther. Uh, And he published his large and small catechisms a couple years later. Again, inspired by teaching theology to his children uh, and trying to help them understand the basic truths of the Christian faith. In 1534, he began to teach at a local university, preaches, writes commentaries, so most of the end of his life uh, was back in the scholarly realm, again, this time under the protection of a powerful German princess. He advises political and church leaders, we'll talk about that in a moment, and he publishes now the entire Bible in German. Uh, He died in uh, 1546, uh, and uh, here is one of his quotes from late in his life. We old folks have to find our cushions and our pillows and our tankards. Strong beer is the milk of the old. He was German after all, wasn't he? Uh, through and through. And so Martin Luther uh, left an incredible impact uh, on the world uh, because of his conscience and his conviction uh, born out of his time in God's word. So post-reformation, and I'm just going to touch on this, we'll get into this more next week. In the 1600s, of course, a revival breaks out within Lutheranism known as German pietism led by Philip Jacob Spener, and fueled by the hymns of Paul uh, Gerhardt. In 1618 to 1648, the 30 years war breaks out in Central Europe and it results in, get this, 8 million casualties. 8 million deaths as churches began to break away from the Catholic Church, Catholic and Protestant churches, various princes, uh, various groups uh, fighting with one another. One of your classmates uh, has volunteered to give a report on the Thirty Years' War, so you're gonna hear that uh, in a couple of weeks um, as we walk through that as well. But know that this had real consequences. Uh, From 1500 to the present, of course, the ripple effects of the Reformation spread throughout First Europe and then to the New World, meaning us. Eventually impacting religion, the rise of denominations, philosophy, the rights of the individual, technology, the role of the printing press and government, the role of the church and the state. So we're gonna get into those a little bit deeper because again, these are the threads of why our world is the way it is today. So why the Reformation was needed. On the last week of October, an angry Luther decided to debate Tetzel and write down a list of 95 topics to debate with him. That's quite a list. Like if I get like 10 things written down, I feel like I'm doing pretty good. But uh, man, Luther kept going. Why did he post those on October 31st? Well, there was a reason. Because November the 1st was All Souls Day. So for all of you uncomfortable with the holiday of Halloween, right? You can just celebrate it as Reformation Day. Dress their kids up as little Martin Luthers and all will be good, right? handout, you know, uh, various uh, German translations of the Bible, it'll be cool. Um, But anyway, November 1st was All Souls Day and a massive exhibit of newly acquired relics would be on display in Wittenberg and pilgrims would come from all over to bow before them and take their time off to stay, to take their time off uh, their stay in purgatory. So again, whether it was relics, money in the coffin, you can see that people were, they they had been misled uh, into believing that these things would have spiritual impact. So Luther's vexed conscience simply saw an ideal opportunity to challenge these superstitious practices. But what he did shook the world. First of all, the world, of course, of religion. The theme of the 95 theses, you have to go all the way down to number 62, uh, I think is the strongest, right? The church's true treasure is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's something we should amen to, right, on a Sunday morning. That He wrote this in 1517. The church's true treasure is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And again, you can think about what he's digging at here. The Roman Catholic Church's attempt to make itself wealthy by the selling of indulgences. He's saying that's not the treasure of the church, right? The treasure is the gospel of Jesus. So the Roman church's emphasis on tradition had long ago become a system of burdensome works by which people had to earn or worse yet buy their way to salvation. People, especially common people, were oppressed under the yoke of religion. Think about the numerous Bible passages where the prophets in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New call out the religious leaders for the burdens that they were placing on people. And that's exactly what the church was doing in the Middle Ages. Luther himself, feeling the weight of guilt as a monk, even after six hours of confessional, had once said, love God, I hate him. Even six hours of confessing every sin he could think of, right, didn't bring Martin Luther closer to God because he did not yet understand grace. He only felt God, right, to be this vindictive character. People, in essence, were longing for the gospel to, again, be good news. Remember when we talked about St. Patrick? Part of how he evangelized the Irish was by helping them understand that they were living the wrong story. That their native gods, that their their Irish gods were tricksters who played tricks on them who could not be trusted, and he said, "I know a better God in essence, the, the God right that the Catholic Church had developed right during this point was a God who expected to be appeased by money and by wealth and by power and when when Luther was able to say that's not the true gospel right the The, the gospel is one of grace of faith it's about the treasure of Jesus Christ. people were longing and for the gospel to again be good news. So he overturned the world in the area of religion. He did it in philosophy as well. Luther's acts struck a match that ignited philosophical shifts that were already beginning to sweep through Europe at the time. When the Muslim Ottomans conquered Constantinople in 1453, the Eastern scholars all fled west with their Greek manuscripts. So this sparked something you probably remember from history class, but don't remember exactly what it's about, right? The Renaissance in rhetoric, in art and writing at the recovery of Greek philosophy. This produced scholarship that became an early form of humanism because they focused on an individual's responsibility to discern truth for themselves and to practically act on these truths. Now that seems secondhand to us in this room, right? That we all have to figure out what truth is. We need to discern truth and live our lives according to truth. But understand that before the Reformation, people didn't think that way. It was, well, whatever the church says, whatever the Lord of my estate says, right? They just went with the flow. There was no thought of individual thinking and individual conscience. And I mean, on a widespread level, of course, there were examples of that on isolated basis. But this whole idea of the Renaissance, right? Collided with what Luther was doing and challenging the powers that be at the time to teach people to basically think for themselves, so when we talk about this kind of humanism, don't confuse it right, with today's secular humanism that in essence is saying man is his own little God. And so we have to right, do whatever seems right unto us. That's not this type of humanism. It was the idea that there is truth, it can be discovered, and we should build our lives according to that truth. That was revolutionary from a philosophical and an epistemological standpoint. Then of course, technology came into play as well. It's interesting because you and I are living at a time in which technology is rapidly changing the world. I visited recently with one of our members who is 93 years old and watching her operate her iPhone. I thought, think about what she has experienced in her lifetime, you know, from living a life without indoor plumbing and electricity, right, to now having the Internet in the palm of your hand. Like, it's, it's remarkable. And in a similar way, Gutenberg's printing press popularized how to mold movable metal type and incorporated this type into a printing press. And so for the first time, printers could mass produce books. The prices of books plummeted and flooded the markets. While the popes generally supported the revival of classical Greek and Roman works, get this, the church itself worked to suppress the Bible getting in the hands of common people. Why? Because if they read it for themselves, then it would threaten the very way that they had structured the church to hold their money and their power. And so they try to suppress it, but of course it wouldn't be suppressed for long. Those same presses that printed Luther's writings would be printing Bibles into most major languages because the Bible is the all time world's best selling book. So think about this in our modern terms, Luther was the first person in history to go viral because this network of printing presses had now become what the internet is for us, an unstoppable, nearly instant, universal marketplace of communication. This also, interestingly enough, made him the world's first celebrity. His fame grew at such a pace that the momentum of it could not be slowed even by his death. And his legend such that much of what we quote know about him, right, is probably fiction. There's a lot of legends, you can Google them, right, about Luther and stuff he did. But kind of like Patrick running the snakes out of Ireland, that's pure legend. There's all kinds of legends about things that, that Martin Luther did, why? Because he, he was known. Because his books were revolutionary, his thinking made its way into the hands of every library and every community in Europe. Uh, And so it made an impact. So he was kind of the first guy to go viral. And then even in government, since the days of Constantine, the church and the state were in essence the same institution in the West. The chain of events that Luther sparked would divide the church, which had massive implications for civil governments. In other words, if the state supported the church, right? And and the, the church propped up the state, then you had a situation, but now you have a split in the church. Well, which one is working with the state? And so really quickly, that whole system began to break down in every nation and every community within Europe. And so violence would break out over reforms as people took sides. And so within decades, sadly, some of the bloodiest wars in European history would erupt. Dr. Timothy Paul Jones says, were the divisions that shattered 16th century Christianity desirable? Perhaps not. But were they necessary? Probably yes. The divisions returned millions of people to a renewed awareness of God's sovereignty of the Bible's authority, of salvation by grace through faith. Even within the Roman Catholic Church, the divisions fostered many needed moral reforms. So division is never desirable, but it is sometimes necessary. And here's why the Reformation still matters today. We still have, right, the ripple effect of this. You and I experience this daily to this day. The Reformation recovered the Bible as our source of authority. I've already read you this section from what Luther said uh, at Worms, but he added, from the beginning of the Reformation, I have asked God to send me neither dreams nor visions nor angels, but to give me the right understanding of his word, the Holy Scriptures. For as long as I have God's word, I know that I am walking in his way and that I shall not fall into any error or delusion. So we've talked before about the various forms of authority, reason, experience, scripture, tradition. It was Luther, again, that elevated scripture to its place as our primary source of authority. Now, the Reformation recovered biblical theology. I'll put it on the screen for you as well, right? That what we call the five solas, right? Sola scriptura, so our only source of authority, right? It has to, to come from scripture. Sola fide, right? We're saved by faith alone, through grace alone, sola gratia, in Christ alone, sola Christus. And this is all what? For the glory of God, sola deo, glory. And so God's purpose, right, is worked out through these five solas. Uh, and that idea that we would take theology not merely from church tradition or not merely from human reason, but that we would build our theology from the Bible itself was really, again, recovered during the area of the Reformation. The Reformation also returned the people to biblical practices. It returned the Bible to people in their own language, Remember that God had the New Testament to be inspired in koine, work for common Greek. It was the lingua franca of its day when it was written. Why? So that people could read it. But now for centuries, only those who were highly trained were literate enough to be able to read the Bible. People could not read it on its own. So the Reformation returned to the Bible to the people in their own language. It returned the sermon to the liturgy of the church. Uh, By this time, right, if you went to mass, you didn't hear a sermon that was an exposition of God's word. You heard some written down prayers. You heard some things uttered in Latin. And again, the common peasant could not speak nor understand Latin. So it was just mumbling to them. They didn't understand anything that was said. And so it returned the sermon to the liturgy of the church. It returned congregational singing to church gatherings. when people didn't sing in church anymore. They had exclusive choirs to do that. In other words, all the time we're telling you, and Juan told you this on Sunday, that church is not a spectator sport. However, by this time in history, that's all church was, was a spectator sport for the elite few to lead while the masses were kept at bay, just observing. And it returned Christian education to the church and the home in the form of catechisms. The idea that discipleship should take place, that spiritual growth should take place, all of those things were recovered and during the, the Reformation. And then the Reformation demonstrated that a man of God could be a family man as well. Interesting, a little backstory to, to Luther's own marriage. A dozen Cisterian nuns embraced Luther's idea and decided to leave their convent because it was a capital crime to remove nuns from their convent. There's a legend, again, we don't know if it's totally true, but that one of Martin's friends hid the nuns in empty herring barrels to escape. That had to be a pleasant experience, right? So herrings smell awesome, especially an entire barrel full of them. So eight of these nuns married, three of them returned home to their parents, but remaining was Catherine von Bora, a feisty 26-year-old redhead whom Luther decided to marry for three reasons. Number one, it would please his father. Number two, it would provoke the Pope. And number three, it would pass on his name. Not exactly what you want to put in your I love you letter, right? Not exactly Hallmark card worthy. He wrote, I would not exchange Katie for France because God gave her to me and other women have even worse faults. So again, guys, maybe not the most romantic line to ever use. But the point is, is that Luther was content to be a monk at one point. Like he he didn't feel like he needed to marry. Uh, When he decided to marry, you get the impression from historians that was a little bit reluctantly, but again, he had read scripture and he knew that the Bible honored the institution of marriage. But what's interesting is, is as you read about Luther's life, he really grew to love his wife. Again, a man who was a man of study, a man who was a scholar, we love our books, we love our quiet time, it takes time to think and write. And guess what happens when you have 10 children, six biological and four adopted? You don't have as much time to do those things. But yet God teaches you in a different way, doesn't he? About what it means to be a father, what it means to sacrifice. You watch the spiritual growth and the development of your children and you learn what it means to have the heart of a father. So Martin Luther actually grew to love and enjoy his family. And when the neighbors saw the great reformer, the most famous man of his time, hanging diapers, and we're not talking about pampers here, people, right? We're talking about washing out nasty cloth diapers on the clothesline, Martin quipped, let them laugh, God and the angels smile. That's a great line for those of us who are in the throes of parenting, right? It may not feel like important work, but Martin Luther recognized that it was. That God and the angels smile at the work of parenting, uh, the hard work of building a successful marriage. So in many ways, Martin Luther was the last medieval man and the first modern man. He is the guy in that hinge of history who, who bridged the gap. He was the man of the moment, the man of the hour. Again, as with most of these characters, I think he was acting on his conscience and on his conviction. I don't think he had any idea how much impact he would have on the world. Or that 600, well, 500 plus, just a little over 500 years later, we would be sitting here talking about him, right? Uh, I don't think he had any clue. But many scholars call him the man who created the future. And this is the reason why. Number one, he was the people's hero. Nobody since Jesus had given voice to the concerns of the working class in the way that he had, which led to the rise of populism. Number two, The free market of ideas, long before it was common, he seemed to intuit that freedom of ideas and speech were crucial to preserving truth, despite, as we'll see, some uneven application for him personally. Pluralism, Luther opened the door for others to rebel against church teachings, even in the ways that he disagreed with personally. Conscience and dissent. Many had argued for reform in the church, but nobody had succeeded in creating a new world in which that was genuinely possible and eventually encouraged. Of course, this had implications, both wonderful and terrible. Truth divorced from power. Luther dared to say that just because one had the power to crush dissent didn't mean that it represented the truth and in fact, probably didn't. You've probably heard the saying, history belongs to the victors or history is written by the victors. And for the first time, Luther said, and mm, that doesn't always mean, right? That what is written is true. Instead, what is true is true. And to him, Jesus freely suffered and died. And in doing so, he illustrated as eloquently as may be done that naked power was not the most powerful thing in the universe. Because prior to that point in history, especially the history of the West, right? It was he, who is the most strongest, he is the most powerful, he who has the biggest army, right? He wins. And so Luther began to argue, no, truth wins ultimately over time. Democracy and freedom, religious tolerance, religious liberty, freedom of expression, freedom of conscience, all of these are underpinnings that would eventually sweep the Western world and lay the groundwork for our democracies. Social reform, Europe would undergo sweeping changes in coming centuries because ideas were allowed to flourish like the abolition of slavery, child labor laws, prison reform, and welfare. Eric Mctaxis, who wrote a a long biography on uh, Luther, says this, in the end, what Luther did was not merely to open a door in which people were free to rebel against their leaders, but to open a door in which people were obliged by God to take responsibility for themselves and free to help those around them who could not help themselves. He believed it far better that someone try to understand God in truth with the possibility of getting some things wrong than to depend on others to understand these things. It's a pretty pretty profound thing he had to say. But we also need to recognize this, that the Reformation shows how God uses imperfect men to accomplish his sovereign purposes in history. Like I, I don't want you guys to get the wrong impression, right? Martin Luther was not perfect. He was not a saint. As a matter of fact, he had his own weaknesses and blind spots. He argued, for example, with fellow reformer Erwook Zwingli over the nature of communion. Remember, the Catholic Church believes that when you take communion, it literally becomes the body and the blood of Jesus, right? When the priest blesses it, actually, is when that happens. Uh, We believe, as we'll take the Lord's Supper this coming Sunday on Palm Sunday, that it is symbolic, that it is a picture of those things. Luther came up with this position in the middle somewhere, right? That basically when you eat it is when it becomes the body and the blood of Christ. So he was kind of between the Catholic world and and what we know of the, the Protestant understanding of that today. Now you've got to give the guy some grace, He only had one lifetime to challenge so many things. I think we need to to keep that in perspective. But yet at the same time, uh, this was a guy who was brutal in his writings and letters towards his opponents, especially later in life. I ran across a a magazine article a few years ago that had taken what they called Martin Luther's sickest burns and uh, uh, put them in the top 10 list. Here's a couple of them. I despise your whorish imprudence. You wear a pair of cobweb trousers. You are worse than all the devils. What you have done, no devil has ever done. Your end is near, you son of perdition and antichrist. Stop now, you are going too far. I know some of you guys, if you want these, I'll email them to you. You can use them against your enemies. <laughs> Why would anyone tolerate some things from someone like you, you rotten pouch? How about this? You are the head of all the worst scoundrels on earth, a vicar of the devil, an enemy of God, an adversary of Christ, a destroyer of Christ's churches, a teacher of lies, blasphemies, and idolatries. You are a brothel keeper over all brothel keepers. And then this is my favorite, shortened to the point. You are a toad eater and a fawner, right? So there you go. So Martin Luther certainly had a way with words. Uh, And he unleashed some fury on his opponents. Uh, Let's just say following him on Twitter would have been pretty pretty entertaining. Uh, But that was, he had a temper and that was true of Luther. Uh, He was interestingly enough for a guy who laid the groundwork for religious freedom, pretty intolerant of religious freedoms for anyone who disagreed with his theology. And he still attempted to use the German state, these German princes as his religious enforcers. Despite his high view of scripture, he called books in the Bible, like the book of James, an epistle of straw. Why? Because for him, having recovered, right, the doctrine of justification by faith, what is the book of James talks about? Well, faith without works is dead. And so for him, he just couldn't stomach, right, that, the idea of works in any way, shape, or form. And so he called it an epistle of straw, that it was weak uh, because it emphasized works. And most infamously, he wrote a 65,000-word anti-Jewish treatise called On the Jews and Their Lives that argued the Jewish synagogues should be burned, their prayer books destroyed, their rabbis forbidden to preach, and their property and money confiscated. So he was an anti-Semite. Some attribute this to his many illnesses in his later years and perhaps even dementia. But nonetheless, sadly, it was used by the Nazis as propaganda 400 years later to justify it. Hitler and others would say, well, Luther believed in these things, right? That the Jews should be destroyed. Uh, So that's probably the saddest of his legacies. Uh, And then again, with kind of just a a quirkish flourish, right? He was one of those guys who tried to, we call this Jesus juke now, right? But he tried to justify everything theologically. And so here was one of his quotes. Whoever drinks beer is quick to sleep. Whoever sleeps long does not sin. Whoever does not sin enters heaven. Thus let us drink beer, okay? (laughs) Okay. As a Baptist pastor, I thoroughly denounce this line of reasoning, Uh, but uh, anyway, but that was indicative of Martin Luther. All right, let's look at a few key scriptures uh, for reflection. We've already talked a little bit about Romans 117, but it's good to hear it. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And that is so powerful because it links, right? The the Old Testament and the New Testament, it links this idea that it's faith uh, that brings us into right relationship with God by his grace, again, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Galatians 3.11 picks up on this, this same theme and the same idea where it says, now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. And so after his encounter with Romans, Luther moved into Galatians and it solidified for him these truths. 1 Peter 2.5, again, something that for us in our religious tradition, we've just always accepted is this idea of the priesthood of all believers but it was one of the most provocative and controversial beliefs of the reformers. And so you will see why the Catholic church wanted to suppress truths like first Peter two five. They didn't want people to have it in their own hands because it says you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house are being built into a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, If we are the priesthood, there is no need for a group of people to come between us and God that we have to go through to say our confessions, that we have to go through in order to get out of purgatory, that we have to go through in order to understand and study and interpret the word of God. And so it threatened, right, the very institutional structure of the church itself. And that was, of course, provocative, controversial at the time. Uh, instead, the priesthood of believers gives each of us access to God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. And the recovery of that doctrine was crucial uh, to the Reformation. Uh, this idea, again, of the authority of Scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This belief that the Bible contained everything we needed to know in order to be rightly reconciled to God and live righteously was a key tenet of the Reformation, since it determined the ultimate source of authority. That is how we know how we are saved. And then back to this idea about the, the church being burdensome to people, Matthew 11 and 29 through 31, the reformers believed that centuries of church tradition had placed a yoke a burden on the back of believers and pointing to verses like this when they recovered the truth that the gospel is designed to free people, not enslave them. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls." For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Those are life-giving words, aren't they? They're so, such good words for us. And so there I have as as well written out the lyrics to A Mighty Fortress. It was written by Luther in 1527, inspired by Psalms. Remember in the university, he taught through the Psalms. And so Psalm 46, and, and there's not very many songs that we still sing 500 years later in church. We sang this one just a couple of weeks ago. And of course, this is the English transliteration of the original German, but a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amidst the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. You know, and as we read these lyrics, just think about the time. Think about the battles that Luther had to fight within his own era. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. This ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. The Lord of hosts, his name from age to age, the same, and he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can't endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fill him. And then that last stanza, that word above all earthly powers. Do you see his theology in this hymn? You see how it's reflected in these words that we sing? That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who, is, who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And all God's people said. Man, it's a good word, isn't it? I put a few resources down there. You can read the English translation of his 95 Theses. I've mentioned already his commentary on Galatians. Uh, It's a great thing to read. Uh, R.C. Sproul and Stephen Nichols probably have the greatest condensed, in my opinion, the the most accessible uh, view that not only talks about his life, but also talks about his legacy, uh, the legacy of Luther. Uh, One of the books I love, and it stretches into our coming weeks as well, is by Alistair McGrath. It's called Christianity's Dangerous Idea, uh, How Luther Sparked the Protestant Revolution. And so if you want to think about all the ripple effects uh, of what we've talked about tonight, uh, and again, we'll be talking about those in the next few weeks Uh, That is an excellent, excellent book uh, to that end. So again, this moment in history, Martin Luther, his courage, his his reliance on the word of God uh, set in motion the world in which we know it. This felt more comfortable, didn't it, tonight? Like more familiar. The kind of things that we were talking about, the, the phrases I used. Why? Because of his courage because of the way that God worked in and through him and the fellow reformers, that people had the courage to stand on the authority of the word of God and challenge the powers that be. We have inherited that world and we have much to be grateful for uh, because, uh, because of their courage and because of their diligent study. So with that, let's see if we've got some questions. Here they come. And again, bear with me as I'm gonna to try to navigate these myself, 14 questions, all right. Great teachers teach that we should be in the word daily to guide us so we can connect with God. How did the average Christian connect without a copy of the Bible? Challenging, right? You can pray, absolutely. And again, they, a lot of the faithful ones were conversant with parts of scripture, I believe, um, but most of them did not have a copy of the word of God. That's why you see so many advances in theology accelerate after the printing press and after uh, Martin Luther, because people were able to read and study uh, and digest the scriptures for themselves. I uh, took a wrong turn on my way to Chicago and I once ended up in Gary, Indiana. So I get you, Martin Luther, when in Rome, get out. Amen. Uh, I'm from Illinois. I know where Gary, Indiana is as well. Um, will Heather be able to answer, to ask questions on the podcast next week? Um, okay, I'll have to, I guess, I'm not sure. All right, so we'll figure that one out. Uh, what's the easiest way to explain serving a church is not always serving God? Um, yeah, if I'm understanding the gist of that one correctly is, is, yes, there are churches right that stray from the authority of Scripture. Uh, and so as we talked about, I mentioned last week, and one of the things we're going to see as a thread in coming weeks is you always have to make a decision of conscience. At what point has a church strayed from the word of God and I am called to be a reformer within that church or within that system? There's several denominations right now in the United States and you could argue our own to some degree as well in which this battle is always being fought because the idea is, is do I stay within the system and be what we would call a Puritan? Do I help try to purify, right? This system within reform it, bring it back to biblical truths or has, has this tradition, this denomination, this church drifted so far away that I need to be a separatist, that I have to go find another tradition, another church to be a part of. Uh, and again, that's, that's a matter of much prayer, much conscience. Uh, and uh, and of course, driving back to what, what scripture says itself. Uh, and those are hard decisions to make. And it's one thing to talk about that on a denominational level, but on a personal level from church to church, uh, had a conversation today, even in a hospital visit, um, you know, about that idea. Like, how, how do I know when it's the right time, right? To, to, to leave the church that I've been a part of because I'm concerned about some of those teachings. Uh, and so that's a decision of much prayer. But what I appreciate again about Luther's example is, is that even if the social and political causes costs, our personal costs are high. We have to make the decision that is most in line with the authority of God's word. And that's important for us to know. Um, did Luther and Tetzel ever actually debate? Yeah, I believe they did. Um, Again, uh, I'm seeing some nods from you guys out there. Yeah, uh, I'm not super, yeah, brushed up on, uh, you know, all of the details of that. But yeah, I'm pretty sure that it set the stage for a debate, which if I remember right, led to the Augsburg, you know, uh, this Pope summoning him to Augsburg. Um, My parents totally had us do Reformation Day instead of Halloween while we were growing up, complete with German chocolate cake. Well done, whoever's parents this was. I like that. There's a lot of good things, right? German pretzels, right? So uh, it's fantastic. Um. All right. Uh, do you recommend reading Luther's works as biblical and theologically sound? Uh, you know, yes. I, I again, I think anything that's not scripture, remember, is not inspired. Like even when I tell you guys to use study Bibles, right? Remember. The Bible is inspired, the notes are not. (laughs) They are man's best attempts to illuminate and to help us understand. So again, I'm not putting Luther on par uh, with, with scripture in any way, shape or form. I do think most of his works are helpful. Again, there are some areas uh, and again, the Lutheran church today, although the Lutheran church in America, many of those have, have wandered away from even some of Luther's teachings, right? That, that were, again, the outworkings of trying to move away from the Catholic traditions, but keep uh, some of the good things. The old saying was, right? They tried not to throw the baby out with a bathwater, um, and so you, you have to grapple with that uh, in some ways, but yeah, you have to always take anything anyone writes, even like Luther right, back to scripture, but most of his uh, writings like his commentary on Galatians uh, I've read, and it's, it's very theologically sound again, wouldn't agree with him on all things, baptism on all things uh the, the nature of communion uh, there would be some, some marked differences there. Uh, but, uh, but those are, those are worth reading, I think. Uh, Did the Roman Catholic Church ever acknowledge, confess, and repent of some of these transgressions? Uh, Yes and no. Um, as, As I mentioned in the notes, even within Luther's own lifetime, the Catholic Church began to realize, we're in trouble here. You've had a popular uprising. And so whether or not it was even just to save their hides in some cases, uh, they began some reforms within the church. And again, I am no expert on Catholic uh, history or theology. I do know that with succeeding popes, sometimes, I know uh, Pope John Paul II, uh, Vatican II, which happened uh, in the late 60s. I know that I think they finally recanted the idea of indulgences, some of these things. Uh, Some of you might be able to help me there. So over time, but again, we're talking hundreds of years later. Uh, on some of these issues, did they back up? And of course, they, they've never changed their, their basic stance that their main source of authority lies uh, with, with the Pope and with the traditions of the church. Uh, who is St. Anne and why is that who Martin Luther called out to in 1505? Again, I'm no expert on the Catholic saints, uh, but one of the, the Catholic saints. And, um, I, and there's probably some connection there, the reason why he called out on her. I don't know if she's like the patron saint of lightning. Is she really? Oh, okay. <laughs> you could have fooled me. I mean, it would make sense, right? Um, and so, I, I, yeah, but there's probably a connection there that you guys could look up. Uh, For parents looking to add catechism, New City Catechism has great resources, I would agree. The word catechism can be intimidating to people. Think of it like family devotions uh, in the sense of catechisms are short, easy to remember phrases. Uh, that historically have been used by parents and Christian educators to pass down what can be more complex theological concepts to young people, to children, right? That they can then build on uh, as they get a little bit older. Uh, and so that that word catechism, yes. There is one called the New City Catechism. I've read it. Uh, I've used some of the similar approach with my kids during different seasons um, because it's helpful to them to have answers, especially when kids are younger, Uh, in their developmental stages and what they're looking for is concrete answers when they're at that concrete developmental stage. Um, The Westminster Catechism is one. Uh, What is the chief end of man? To enjoy God and uh, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's a great thing for your kids to know. Why do we exist, right? Why, Why are we here? To enjoy God, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that's a great truth to build on, right? That's, that's, that's number one uh, in the Westminster Catechism. Uh, and I don't have the rest of them memorized, but, but that is a, a good resource. Uh, how does Luther following his conscience compare to the my truth ideology of our culture today? I'm glad somebody brought that up. I thought about that this week. Uh, like I used the example of humanism in Luther's day meant understand the truth and live out the truth, the objective truth. Right? Things often swing too far, secular humanism, I am God and therefore what I say is the truth that needs to dominate the universe. So what you often have is when the pendulum swings, it swings too far in the opposite direction. And so you have uh, this, this, this reaction. And today this my truth idea would be an example of that gone to rides secular humanism on steroids has been fueled by postmodernism, which is the deconstruction of objective truth right the rise of pluralism that all ideas are equally valid whether or not they're congruent with reality which is truth and we could spend all day right on this on philosophy but even the breakdown of language that now what i communicate it doesn't really matter what i think it says the arbitrator of truth is how you hear it and receive it and so you begin to see how people begin to create right this man I, I, my way is is the only way that there is and hence why we have so many people today who have a piecemeal ideology or religion because they've taken what they like of a lot of different things. What's the problem with that? It's not coherent. It's not consistent. And it can't answer ultimate questions like the existence of evil in the world adequately. And so, well, that's what, in essence, it becomes. And so, yeah, uh, you know, Luther said, oh, we have a conscience. We need to be responsible before God. Again, located in his theology, but then people unhinged from the God of the Bible, right? Carry it too far and make it all about themselves. Uh, and so it is, it is an outworking of, of what Luther began by saying, right, you, you no longer have to answer to the church uh, for what you believe. You are responsible to God for what you believe. And people are like, well, there is no God, so I'm just gonna believe what I believe. You get it? See where that trajectory goes uh, eventually when it's unhinged? Uh, according to Christian apocryphal tradition, Saint Anne was the mother of Mary. Okay, there you go. Uh, During the high Middle Ages, St. Anne became increasingly identified as a maritime saint, so the saint of the seas, protecting sailors and fishermen and invoked against storms. There it is. So it was, she was the saint of lightning in a sense. That's good. Did Martin Luther progress baptism? Uh, I don't recall, I know that he didn't advocate for immersion, uh, that the Lutheran tradition to this day, I believe, still sprinkles. Uh, and so I don't I don't believe that baptism was an area that, that Luther uh, dove into. Uh, and then will Greg be able to answer, uh, ask questions on next week's podcast? Yes, by submitting them to Slido. You can ask uh, any of these questions. And I saw, I feel like I saw one jump in there. Um, here's one. It seems many of the older denominations of Christianity do not have a problem with alcohol, only drunkenness. When did alcohol become looked down upon? Um, the, the, there's lots of ways to answer that. Uh, It depends on the tradition, of course, but a lot of that had to do with the temperance movement uh, of the early uh, 19th century, early 20th century uh, in the United States of America. Here's one quick, interesting little thread. Last semester, we talked about the different forms of millennialism. Well, post-millennialist people believe that we gotta clean up our act for Jesus to return. Interestingly enough, uh, post-millennialism had a huge rise in popularity in the late 1800s. That led to a lot of the social temperance movements, such as moving towards the abolition of alcohol in the United States. And so, for a lot of us who were raised in the South, South Central part of the United States, right, the lingering effects of that was that, that alcohol, right, was viewed as, as, as negative to society. And it's true, I believe that it is. Uh, here's the way I put this very pragmatically as a pastor. I've had many people make appointments with me over the years to confess they struggle with alcoholism and we help get them into treatment programs. It's destroyed many marriages. It's messed up a lot of parenting. It's destroyed many lives. I have yet to have someone come and make an appointment with me and say, pastor, I just want to let you know, alcohol made my life better. So practically speaking as a pastor, I see the evils of alcohol. And that's where I think in a good sense, right? A lot of our forebears understood uh, that it was a social problem and continues to be to this day. Now, again, the Bible, I don't think you can argue that when Jesus turned the water into wine, it was just basically grape juice. Uh, When the master of the ceremonies comes out and says, you've saved the finest wine for last, the Jews knew their wine. They knew what they were talking about. Um, And so yet, obviously the Bible is clear uh, that to drink to drunkenness, right, is a sin. Uh, And so we need to be biblical and we need to be careful about the way that we practice that. But the tradition, why it's especially in the South viewed that way, really comes out of the temperance movement uh, of the early uh, 20th century. Great question. Um, And by the way, if you go to other parts of the world uh, on mission trips, don't be shocked when even the Baptist pastors drink. I've been with the mission teams before and they're like, oh, the pastor's drinking. Should we be on this mission trap, right? I'm just like, breathe, it's okay, I promise, right? So, all right, I think that's it. All right, you guys weren't too tough on me tonight. Uh, Oh, do you know when the Bible is translated into English? Well, it began all the way with Wycliffe, right? Uh, And then progressively uh, after him over the years, the most famous translation, the 1611 uh, King James. There were a few versions before. If you go back our second week of the podcast, we talk about the history of the Bible. Uh, Brian did an excellent job. And Steve Reynolds, who was here, just slipped out. Uh, He is the head of LifeWay's Bible Publishing Division. And so he can tell you everything you want to know. We have cool guys like that in our church. Uh, And so if you want to know all about uh, the the Bible translations, he can help you with that as well. All right. I think that's it, making sure. All right, you guys, let us pray. And uh, then we will go. Lord Jesus, uh, we are grateful for uh, men like Martin Luther, faithful men and women throughout the centuries who have stood on the authority of your word, God, who have uh, made their stand for the way they live, the way they think, uh, God, the way that they believe our world should be, that they've drawn a beeline uh, from scripture to attempting to apply those things faithfully and consistently to our world. So God, we stand here, we sit here, we, we are in this place tonight because Uh, of their faithfulness to you. So God, would we be as faithful in our generation uh, to be sure that the church itself doesn't slide from biblical authority and truth? Uh, Would you find us courageous, no matter the social, political cost to us, God, to stand on the authority of your word? And God, would you use us in our generation the way that you use the reformers to bring people back to your truth so that they may know the word of God so that they may hear the gospel clearly so that they may turn from their sins and themselves to Jesus as savior and be saved. And so God, thank you for a history and what it teaches us and how faithful people can make a difference, a difference that lasts till this day. So God, as we go from this place, may we be inspired, encouraged, built up. And we love you and it's in your name we pray, amen.